Well, most of you know, if you've been in the church for a while, you've probably seen I've got a bunch of little kids running around. I've got six kids. My youngest is Eva. She's only 13 months old. And um, although she is precious and she's beautiful, she's no saint. And she knows how to sin already. Nobody needed to instruct her in this. We do have to guide her and instruct her in, in going away from harmful things or things that are bad for her. But we never have to instruct her on the way she should not go. And it's interesting to watch a one-year-old and, and see how they learn and how they interact with the world and, and see how they react. If you have kids, if you remember having little kids, and see how they react when they don't get their way. You ever seen a one-year-old or a 13-month-old? How do they react when they don't get their way? We probably heard some of that this morning, maybe from my own child. Um, and by the way, just for a moment, I want to say thanks to all the the, the parents who have little kids below two who still come and still try to participate together. So I just want to say thank you. If you are, you're coming and you've got a child under two, I know how hard it is to have a baby in the service and to try to pay attention and focus. And yet I see so many people doing that and we're really grateful to have you. And please never feel like um, you're not wanted. You're wanted here and we appreciate you. Well, that, that's not part of my notes, but thank you very much. I was just noticing that this morning and how difficult and challenging it can be. Um, often it's because our kids aren't getting their way and we're trying to direct them. And then on Sunday morning, it's even more awkward because you're trying to pretend you're nice and happy. Come on, you know. And um, when she, my daughter doesn't get her way, she gets frustrated. She cries. She throws a fit. This is a relatively new thing is that she's beginning to exercise her own will. She's beginning to, to you tell her something, she'll look back at you, say no, and then do it. It's, it's frightening. You know, where did that come from? When I stop her from climbing the stairs, I think it's her favorite area of, of subtle disobedience, then, you know, I, I stop her from doing something that one day she'll be ready to do, but she's not ready to do that quite yet. And when I stop her, she, she doesn't understand my guidance is for her good. She just knows she's not getting what she wants and she gets upset. You ever, you ever get upset like that, by the way, when you... T- you don't understand God's guidance and direction for you is for your good, and so you get upset because they're not getting what you want. We don't change a lot, do we? Well, when she is aware, um, she needs to learn to respond to my direction for her good. And, and often, she, although she can't understand what I'm doing behind the scenes, sometimes I'm redirecting her. You ever do that with your kids? You redirect them instead of hitting them head on. You're like, hey, instead of going up the stairs, let's look at the Christmas tree. And, you know, and it makes it a little bit easy to redirect. Sometimes you directly confront. Sometimes you don't. There's different ways we guide and direct our own children. There's different ways that God guides and directs us as well. Often we can get frustrated when we don't understand God's purposes and understand His plans. And what should we do next, right? Um, like, like my child wants to know what's coming. They want to know what's next. And sometimes it can be difficult for them when they don't. I'm no different, really. When I don't know what's coming next, when I don't know what I should do, when things seem unclear, when I have to make a decision, it can be frustrating. It can be challenging. It can be difficult. But we're not left in the dark. You see, God provides direction and guidance for us, sometimes in ways we might not get, but He provides direction and guidance for us. I want to call your attention this passage in Acts. If you look in Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. This is our passage that we're going to start with today. This is God's word. And it said, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit, 
to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul has seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Lord, for, for, for challenging passages like this even, Lord, that, that may not seem to be clear at first, Lord, but thank you for your word that makes all things clear. Thank you that you do guide us and direct us. And thank you that you show us that you guide us and direct us, even if we may not understand, we may not see, and our plans might get changed. God, I pray that you would illuminate our our hearts and our minds with your word. That, Lord, we would see you. We would, we would have faith in you. We would grow to trust in you, in your guidance, in your direction for us. That we would see that you are directing and guiding us for our good, even when we don't understand, Lord. But I also pray that we would have faith that we can hear your guidance and direction. And God, I pray these things. I pray that you would enable me to speak your words, Lord, clearly. And I pray that you would enable all of us to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some really unusual guidance and direction in this passage, isn't there? Did you catch that? He says, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. There's no explanation as to what that means, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. And then he says, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go to Bithynia. What in the world does that mean? Did they, did they see an apparition? I don't think so. And then it says that Paul has a vision. He, he, he sees this vision of a man from Macedonia, we don't know how he knows this man from Macedonia, saying, come on over here. And so when you encounter a passage like this in Acts, it should give you a little bit of pause. It gave me pause. I'm thinking, Luke, what in the world are you trying to get across here? God, what are you trying to communicate to us through Luke? And some, so often, I, I think, though, if you just stop at a passage like this and you don't look at it within the context of the, the broader book of Acts and see how was Luke communicating? What does he communicate in general about God's guidance? And you just take this passage. It's so easy to have a passage like this become a proof text for us, isn't it? Well, this is how God guides us normally, right? God must guide us normally by some, woo, the Holy Spirit says, don't go. Or he stops us. So the Spirit of Jesus prohibits us. Or so we're going to have a vision. And so we, we can think that we should be looking for these things. Is that what the passage is really saying? Is that what Acts is saying? Is that what Luke's trying to get across here? When we have an unclear passage like this, if it's descriptive, Luke is describing what happened. We have to ask ourselves, what is God trying to do? What's God trying to get across? I think at this point in Acts, he's trying to get across that, that the, the people of God are depending upon God. They're, they're listening for him. They're hearing him. They're attentive to him. But that's not... All he has to say about how God guides and directs. So we're going to do it this morning. We're going, to, we're going to take a little little backwards trip in Acts, a little going back in time, if you will. I actually have a picture for you. I want to ask you if any of you guys recognize this picture up here. Anybody, anybody recognize this picture? Just shout it out if you recognize the picture. Oh, my goodness. Now, I think I only heard guys on that one. Why is that? Um, 
Uh, and and knew it as well. Look at that, a flux capacitor. In case you don't know what a flux capacitor is, it's a mythical creation of Doc Brown from the movie Back to the Future. And it enabled Marty McFly and his time machine, his DeLorean, which I saw one last week. It was really cool. I got a picture. But um, his time machine went back in the past as he sped up to 88 miles an hour. And then he, he goes back so he can better understand the future and change his future. Today we're going to do a little bit of that back to the future. We're not using a flux capacitor. But we're going to go back because whenever you find, context, find passages like this, we want to look at the context. We want to look at the context around there. We also want to look at the broader context of the book of Acts and the whole book. And so we're going to do that. We're going to go back so we can understand this passage now. And so in a sense, we're going to go back to the future, if you will. And so the big question that we're going to seek to answer today is, it's how does God guide and direct his people Specifically in Acts, but I think it applies to us as well today. How does God normatively, how does God normatively guide and direct His people? It's an important question for us, isn't it? How many people in this room, you don't have to tell what you're, you're facing, but how many people in this room are facing some kind of decision right now? Some kind of decision of any kind. Where you should go to school, where you should do for a job, um, whether to take a job or not. I said like two thirds of the room. This is, just, these are important questions for us to consider. How does God guide and direct us and does this word have anything to say about it i believe that there's at least six ways as i've been went, went back to the book of acts and and went and looked through okay in all of the 16 chapters of acts that we've been in so far what has god revealed in addition to this passage what has god revealed about the ways he guides and directs his people normatively what has god revealed i think as we go back, we're going to see that the, the first thing, really, in Acts, the first way we see God guiding His people is through His Word. And we can see that God guides and directs us through His Word. And that's actually the very beginning of Acts. Luke is showing that what, what guided the apostles, what guided the disciples, what directed them, was His Word. If you'll turn your Bibles, there's going to be a lot of flipping back and forth in your Bibles. So have your Bibles out, have them handy. We don't have them overheads for you because I want you to be in God's Word and see His Word for yourself. So Acts chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, actually 2 and 3. And it's speaking of Jesus. And it says, after He, Jesus, had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He'd chosen... To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What's the very first kind of direction that we see in the book of Acts? It's that Jesus is commanding his disciples. He's giving them his word. Now for them, they heard it firsthand. For us, we have his commands and his words written down in scripture for us. But the primary way, and really, if you think about it, if you remember what, what were those commands that Jesus gave, and we covered that first passage. Those commands, and Matthew sheds light on it, some other um, writers shed light on what were some of those commands that Jesus gave after he appeared to his disciples. One of, one of the ones that everybody knows is in Matthew 28, when, when Jesus commanded his disciples, he says, go into all the world. Go into all the world and, and proclaim the gospel, teach the good news. And he says, proclaim that good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. That was his command. Go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he tells them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And so Luke is using shorthand and he says, after Jesus had made all these commandments, then he tells them to wait. So what is the expectation for the disciples that Luke is trying to show to us is that they were guided by God's word. They were guided by the commands of Jesus. Is that what guides our lives first and foremost? I think that's, that, that, that's indicative. Luke is not just saying, oh, that's, that's the way to start. I think he's starting the book of Acts off for that reason of saying the very way that they were guided, how they started off, what really directed all of their activity in the entire book of Acts was the commands of Jesus. They were going into all the nations. They were seeking to make disciples. That's why we've taken that as our mission for our church is to actively seek to continually be disciples, to live as disciples to grow, to make disciples. Why? We're trying to carry out the commands that he's done that, that really shape the entire book of Acts that should shape our lives. When you're encountering a decision, one of the first questions is, what has God commanded me? How am I to live? What's the mission he's called me to be on? The early church wasn't looking for its mission. They weren't trying to come up with a, with a mission statement. They had one. They weren't looking for some clever way to state, what are we supposed to be all about? What are we supposed to be doing? And they weren't looking for some hip, cool thing. But what they were doing is they were obeying the mission that they were given by Jesus. They assumed that God's revealed will, that Jesus' commandments, they were actually meant to guide their whole lives. And if you've been reading through the book of Acts, you'll see that, that that's what guided everything they did. They were always seeking to make disciples. They were always seeking to make disciples. They were, they were always seeking to teach other people about Jesus and what he commanded. They were baptizing. They were going into all the nations. That's guiding all of the early disciples, apostles, church members alike. That's meant to guide us as well. They assumed God's revealed will was to guide all their lives. And it's really the clear commandment of Jesus and his mission that informed and directs all the activity in the book of Acts from the very beginning all the way through the end. All the way through the end. And you see the Apostle Paul at the very end of the book of Acts. What's he doing? He's he's in prison, but he's writing letters and he's preaching the gospel. He's making disciples. He's still carrying out the mission that God's word called him to. That's what's to guide our lives. If, If in our lives you're wondering, what does God have for me generally? Well, first and foremost, God has for each and every one of us to be disciples of him. To be disciples of Jesus Christ and then to be going into all the world, to be preaching and proclaiming and making disciples. That, that should inform all of our decision making. And that's not just any ethereal thing, it's being a practical thing. Where, where do I go regularly? Can I make a habit of going to the same places regularly so that I can be about making disciples and getting to know people? How can I position myself in such a way at work, at home, in school, so that I can obey his, his commands that he's given to me? And then not only that, we see disciples applied all of Scripture to life. They saw where God was at work and they sought to join God in His work. And they were trying to apply all of Scripture to their lives. You know, like the early church, we too should be seeking to make Jesus known, to make disciples, to teach people to obey Jesus. Acts 3, we have an account of Peter and John. If you remember the story, they go up to the temple and, and what are they doing? They're, they're going up to the temple to pray. It's a, it's a normal part of their Christian life. Why? Because God's commanded His people to pray. Because God said, if, if, you'll, if my people who are called by my name will, will seek me in prayer, I will hear them and answer their prayers. And so Peter and John, they are going up to the temple to pray. 
So there's some, some principle there. Nobody commanded them directly at that moment to go up, but they know that it's a good discipline, and so that guided their life. And they're going up there, and as they're going to the temple, God directs them to a man who was lame from birth. They didn't anticipate that. They weren't planning for that. They weren't thinking. You don't see an indication where they're thinking, you know what, we're going to go up to the temple to pray. We're going we're to do what God's commanded us, basically. And, and you know that guy who sits outside the gate every Sunday? We're going to go to him. Let's go to him. Let's, let's plan that. No, they were just, they were just normally living their lives for Jesus and that they were paying attention to how God was working in the midst of the normal everyday lives. And they responded. They prayed for him. And, and he was healed. And they didn't wonder what to do next. You see, when this man was healed, it says multitudes rushed to them. They, they tried to figure out what in the world, because everybody knew who this guy was. And so the multitudes came. But they didn't have to stop and pray and say, okay, God, now what do we do with these multitudes of people who've come? They immediately just responded. They assumed that God was using the normal course of their everyday lives to guide them, to direct them, as they were faithful to just live by his word. And so living by God's word, they, they applied that principle of making disciples. And they said, well, here's, here's a great opportunity. We have, we have multitudes of people coming. And so they began to preach the gospel to them. And then they get thrown in jail. They get arrested for preaching the gospel in Acts 4. We hear the story about that. And, and the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the rulers of that day, they said, you need to stop talking about Jesus. You're causing problems for us. And then in Acts 4.19, if you want to look in your Bibles there, it says, But Peter and John answered them and said, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They applied a basic biblical principle, which is if, if the fear of man comes up against the fear of God, we should always choose to fear God instead of fearing man. That, that guided their lives and how they reacted and interacted with other people. When things got hard, they didn't assume God was closing a door and they should stop. You know, I think so often we get involved as, as believers in this kind of form of Christian mysticism. And we can think that, ooh, we can look for these open and closed doors. And sometimes maybe, but that's not primarily how God guides us. He primarily guides us through the clear principles of His Word. Sometimes the clear commands of Scripture apply directly. Other times it's the principles in His Word. They didn't assume because they were having a hard time and, and the Pharisees said, she says, you can't preach in the temple anymore. They didn't say, well, we've got to go elsewhere. And actually it's not God, what God intended because what we see happening is that an angel frees them. It says an angel of the Lord appeared to them and he freed them. And what happened when the angel of the Lord appeared to them? The angel of the Lord said, go back to the same place. Go back to where the door was closed and keep preaching. And so they went back again to the very place where they got arrested. And we, we know the, the comical account. They were looking for them in prison. They were like, where are they? Well, they were back in, in the temple, right beside where the Sanhedrin was probably meeting. And they were preaching. And then they got threatened by the same people who killed Jesus. But instead of assuming God was shutting them down, in Acts 4.29, if you'll flip over to there, they prayed that God would give them a way to continue to speak for Him. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to Your servants to continue to speak Your Word with all boldness while You stretch out Your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of Your holy servant, Jesus. They were looking for God to enable them to do what He would already called them to do. And they were not assuming difficulties and challenges 
were meant to stop them. But they prayed and they sought God. And they sought God to do supernatural things where he was already clear in his word. And then God answers the prayers and it told us in, in verse 31 of Acts 4, it says, when they prayed, the place they were gathered, they were shaken, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word with boldness. They kept doing what they were called to do. They kept speaking the word of God. You know, as Christians, we can get so stymied and stuck and we can think, well, I don't know what my next step is. Yes, we do. There's a lot of clarity for us in the, in the Christian walk. We know that we're to be disciples of Jesus who are proclaiming His Word. We know that we're to be salt and light in the world. We know that we're to live holy lives before Him. We know a whole lot about what we're to do, don't we? We actually know far more about how to live the Christian life than what is unclear for us about the next steps. The problem is, we want to know the next step, don't we? We want to know what's next. And we get anxious and frustrated or confused when we don't know what's next. But God says, I've given you some direction, I've given you a road map, and I want you to go on it. I want you to live. And I want you to live your life trusting in me. It says they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. They continue to do what they knew what they're supposed to do. They lived as a close church community for this common mission that God had called them to. We can see in the book of Acts that, that biblical principles were applied to the lives they knew they were called to God's people. They knew they were called to His church to, to carry out His mission. So what, what they did was they started selling stuff. Nobody had to ask them, go and sell things to help your brother and sister who were in need. They said, no, we're on a mission together. And that mission's guiding and directing all of us. So we're going to apply this general broad principles of generosity and living for the kingdom. We're going to apply that to our lives. And we're going to sell everything we have. We're going to contribute to His cause and His kingdom. Because they were applying these broad, general principles to their lives specifically. And then they took action based on that. For us, I think we can, we can take note from that. We can apply a lot of the principles of what are we living for? Are we living for His kingdom? And that can inform and direct our lives as well. Great King David, he once wrote that he says, God's word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Does God's Word function for us that way? Do we look to God's Word to function for us that way? If, if you want to be inspired about how wonderful God's Word is for us for all of life, go and read Psalm 119 and see just how many times David talks about how wonderful and beautiful God's Word is for him. Why? Because David knew that his Word was good for all of life, that it directed and instructed and informed all of life. But also in Acts, there's some also some different things happening. It's not just God's word that he guides us through. In Acts, it becomes apparent that one of the ways God guides his church is through supernatural means. God guides and directs through supernatural means. And sometimes it's through external miracles. Look in Acts 2, 1. If you flip over in your Bibles again. Acts 2, verse 1. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were obeying his command to be together to wait. It says, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. 
what was going on. God was divinely guiding and directing them through supernatural means. They weren't pursuing those supernatural means. They were pursuing just whatever the promise of the Holy Spirit meant. I don't think they really knew that. Jesus said, go and wait. They were being obedient. And as they were being obedient to him, listening for him, trusting, having faith in Jesus, he sends the Holy Spirit. And he uses a supernatural means really to guide and direct them. He, he did what they could not do. He brought multitudes. And he guided them in, in supernatural ways. They were, they were anticipating God to be at work and they were trusting in him. Now, they weren't seeking that supernatural guidance, in a sense. They were seeking the Holy Spirit. But God guided them and directed them. And sometimes God guides and directs us in ways we don't anticipate, in ways we don't plan. Disciples, they weren't planning citywide tent revival meetings. They, they were gathered together, praying and waiting for the promise of the Father. And then in Acts 3, we, we can see them stepping out in faith. We see them stepping out in faith when they prayed for that, that lame man and God healed them and brought people to come to hear their preaching. And in Acts 5, in the account of Ananias and Sapphira, Peter could not have anticipated. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira? They lied about how much they were giving, that they were giving everything to Jesus and to the church, and they really weren't. And so God strikes them dead. That's a supernatural occurrence. And how did that guide and direct the church? Well, supernaturally, it let the church know that they need to live in the fear of God, not live in the fear of man. Not live for man's approval and praise, but live for God's approval. And then in Acts 5.20, we see an account where the apostles are in prison. And an angel comes into prison. Remember the story, he kind of, he kind of smacks Peter on the side and says, wake up! And, and Peter gets up and he takes him out of prison and then they, they, they deliver, they're delivered to go and, and do what he's called them to do. Sorry, actually Acts 5 is the, the kind of the temple where he's told to go and stand in the temple. They're called to go back and preach there. In Acts eight twenty six, the angel of the Lord appears to Philip after he had been preaching to the Samaritans. In Acts eight twenty six, it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert place. And he rose and he went. God was directing Philip clearly through a supernatural means. He sent an angel to him to tell him what he must do. And later the Ethiopian eunuch was told all about Jesus and he baptized him. And Luke wrote that the Spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. That's very unusual, wouldn't you think? That's supernatural guidance. It says Philip found himself in the city of Azotus. Although I wish sometimes that was normative. That's not normative in the New Testament, is it? How many people do you know who've been transported? And I don't mean in Star Trek. Nobody, right? I don't know anybody who's been transported like that. You know, hey, I was just preaching the gospel, and then all of a sudden, I was, I was down in Anderson. I don't know how I got there. I just, then I just started preaching the gospel, walking my way back up here. That's not normative guidance, but sometimes God does supernatural things. I don't even know of the New Testament of anything else occurring like that. But I do know that God continues to work supernaturally. And so um, we, we can respond to God when he's doing it. I have a friend named Bill and he was, he was once um, in, in a place where there are people from another nation and they didn't understand his language. And, 
And Bill was just praying about, you know, how do I, how do I talk to these people? I don't speak their language. And he was praying in tongues. He thought on, under his breath. And he wasn't praying out loud or he didn't think that. But it turns out he was praying out loud. And, and the guy next to him heard him speaking and proclaiming the gospel in his own language. And, and it floored Bill. And Bill didn't know this guy was actually bilingual. And he says, do you speak, I don't know if it's Spanish or what it was. And, and uh, Bill said, no. He goes, oh my goodness, you were just sharing the gospel with me. I, w- I want to understand more about this. In Acts 9, we have a, a, an account of Saul's conversion. It's a famous example of miraculous intervention. Saul had been persecuting Christians. He had been approving of their murder and on their way to persecute more Christians in Damascus. And Jesus stops him in his tracks. He supernaturally intervenes and, and directs and guided, guided Paul. It says in Acts 9, 4, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, And Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. And Jesus miraculously intervened in Paul's life because he wanted Paul to display his great grace and power to forgive and transform lives. And then Jesus tells Ananias to go in Acts 9.15, to, to go to Paul and lay hands on him so he might be healed and filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Lord says, why? Why is he intervening supernaturally in this way? In Acts 9.16, he says, For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer my sake for the sake of my name. God's not con- stopping, to, stopping his work and, and, and intervening miraculously. God continues to lead and guide and, and, and direct people sometimes supernaturally. I have a friend, he was a communist office, officer once in India years ago. He'd been engaged in persecuting Christians actively and beating them and putting them in jail. One day he was walking along a road and he saw a vision of Jesus. His parents had told him about Jesus and he rejected God because he was an untouchable in India and thought that um, God was upper caste and he wanted nothing to do with that because God must not love him because he was an untouchable. And so the communists loved everybody supposedly. And yet he was walking along a road after persecuting Christians and he sees this, a vision of Jesus holding out his arms and his nail-scarred hands and saying, why are you persecuting me? He immediately fell to his knees and was convicted and and became a believer. Today, my friend Yesu Potam, he is still proclaiming the good news of Jesus. He's helped establish several hundred house churches in India. He's he's helped train hundreds of Indian pastors. He's established two hospitals where countless people received not only care, but the good news about Jesus. And he's he's helped oversee thousands of children go through the two orphanages he's helped build. And they've they've received instruction about Jesus in those orphanages. God continues to work supernaturally, miraculously today. It's not normative in his guidance. But we can, we can have faith and trust that God's still at work. He, he guides and directs his people in all kinds of ways. We see in, in Acts 10, Cornelius saw a vision of an angel telling him to send in men to get Peter. A couple of days later, Peter saw a vision that prompted him to go with him and preach the gospel. In Acts 11, Agabus, he prophesied to the church in Antioch that there would be a great famine in Jerusalem. And, and they believed that there would be, and so they sent money. And then it turns out later on, There was a great famine there. In Acts 12, Peter was thrown in jail by King Herod and he faced almost certain death that very night. 
That was a story I meant to reference earlier. It's not Acts 5, it's Acts 12. And, and, and the angel of the Lord released him supernaturally, freeing him. Talk about clear direction and guidance. And there's all kinds of accounts like that throughout the book of Acts. Most of the time when those spectacular miracles are occurring, they're tied to groundbreaking work for the gospel or opening the door for the gospel to go to people who haven't heard it or to bring people in. And although the Holy Spirit sometimes guides and directs like that today, miracles like that are pretty rare. They're actually rare in the New Testament too. We're not told to look for guidance that way or rely on miracles for direction, but we, we can pray like they did that God would work mightily. Not relying and depending upon that, but saying, you know what? I'm going to pray that God would be mightily at work. Trusting in Him, I'm going to be faithful and pray that God would be at work. We see another way that God guides and directs is through internal subjective guidance, like in Acts 16, where we started. God guides sometimes through and directs through internal subjective guidance. He guides through His Word. He guides through applying biblical principles. He guides through supernatural things sometimes. And He guides sometimes through internal subjective guidance. I don't know if you've ever experienced that as a Christian. Where you feel like, you know, I should just talk to somebody. I should just call them. I, I need to, to share the Scripture with them. And it turns out it was the exact same thing they needed to hear. It says, once Philip arrived or the angel sent him, somehow it says the Holy Spirit told Philip to go and join the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. So the angel of the Lord told him to go down the road, and then all of a sudden he's going down the road, and somehow the Holy Spirit tells him. I'm guessing it was some internal subjective sense. We say, hey, you see that chariot over there? Go to that chariot and share the gospel with that guy. Maybe he felt like he was supposed to. He didn't know what kind of prompting it was. It's not a regular occurrence, but it can be often for some. You know, Philip wasn't saying, oh God, um, what do I do? I'm going to wait until I hear the subjective sense. No, he wasn't waiting for that. But when it came, he was listening for that. I used to drive into the same entrance of my work every day. I used to work for the federal government outside of Washington, D.C. And I would drive in the same entrance of my work every day because I would scam a VIP parking pass. I I admit it's not really a a noble thing to do, but I had friends who were um, in, in charge of that. And I would come to the main gate and I would... I would scam a VIP parking pass, and I get to park right in front of the building. And so it was great. I didn't have to walk. I walked like three steps, and I, I just tried to put my head down if I saw like a congressman or a senator come in or whatever. And um, I came in. And so every day I would, I would come in that way, and it was self-serving, and it was easy, and why not? And, but one morning I was just driving in, and I had this subjective kind of feeling of don't go in the main entrance. Don't get a VIP pass. Just go in the back entrance today. And so I did. I went in the back entrance. As I was going in the back entrance, I went through the gate, and... And when I got just a, a, a little ways in, I saw a guy I knew. He was a, a, one of the special police officers in the, in the compound there. He starts running, and, and, and he looked alarmed. And so I slowed down. I was like, what's going on? And he said, there's been a shooting out at the main gate. And, uh, and when I got into my desk, I found out that, that five or six cars had lined, or six cars had lined up. And all of them, um, a man had gotten out of the front and shot all of them. And I would have been that car in one of those cars in the lineup. And it was just the subjective, you know, still small voice. Sometimes we have those things. We don't always figure out why. We don't always know that, oh my goodness, I was almost just killed. We don't always have that. In Acts 13, it says, while the church in Antioch was worshiping, in Acts 13, 2, it says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there 
they sailed to Cyprus. They were experienced, they experienced some kind of, we don't know what it looked like, but some kind of subjective leading of the Spirit. I'm not sure how the Holy Spirit communicated with Paul and Barnabas and the apostles and the disciples there. But we know that they were listening, and when they heard from the Lord, they responded. Now they says they fasted and, and prayed to make sure they were hearing from God. And then, yep, it seems like it's in line with God's Word, the commission He's called us to. And so because it was in line with God's Word, they sent them out. And then remember the verse we started with in Acts 16, 6 and 7. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It says, And and when they come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. We don't know what that means either. Luke doesn't explain it at all. Giving no explanation about how, how they're forbidden or how the Spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. You know, I doubt they saw an apparition, but they, they had a sense, probably a subjective leading that I'm guessing sometimes you've gotten over the years. I've grown to, to listen more to those subjective promptings when they come in the past months. I've been aware of, of at least three or four times when I really felt like I was supposed to call somebody or check on someone, and, and it was a clearly a God-ordained moment when I just thought, oh, you know, I really should talk to that person. And I did, and it turns out that that was the very moment that they needed someone to talk to them. And they were doubting or struggling. A couple months ago, I, I remember we were, it was our, our, my night off. And on my night off, I really just want to relax at home, be with the family, and, and have a good time with them. And, and so we were having a family night. And I just felt like, you know, Julie, I think you need to go across the street and, and, and just check on her neighbor. And it was inconvenient. I didn't want her to go because I wanted to have a family night. And, and she didn't really want to go. Not because we're mean, but because sometimes you're tired. And... And so I said, you know, I really think you need to go now. And so she goes across the street. And it turns out that unbeknownst to us, our neighbor was having an extremely rough time. She was about to lose her job. She opened up to, to my wife that the difficulty she was having. And, and, my, and Julie was able to care for her, to talk about God with her and pray for her. And it was a very significant time. Julie came back and said, I'm really glad I went. It was obviously the Lord. And there's those kind of promptings do occur for Christians. They don't happen all the time by any means. And we shouldn't always be looking for that, by the way. But when they do come, we can be sensitive to it and say, okay, is this in line with God's word, generally what he's called me to do? Does this sound like something, a biblical principle? Or, or if it's contrary to God's word, by the way, that's, that's not a prompting from, from God. If it's contrary to biblical principles, you're not hearing from God. That's something bad that you ate, you had onions the night before, whatever. That happens too, Right? So we shouldn't trust those things. We shouldn't rely on those things. We shouldn't look for those things. But we should be listening for the act of leading the Holy Spirit. We should be keeping in step with the Spirit, listening for the Spirit to lead us. We're not supposed to wait to hear what kind of clothes we should wear. You know, this morning I didn't spend a lot of time in prayer saying, God, should I wear khakis or not? Blue socks are black. And <laughs> We're not meant to, you know, God, what kind of groceries should I get this week? You know, if I called my wife and said, honey, I, I, um, I know you said to get potatoes for the recipe that you're making for scalloped potatoes, and, and, but I really just had this sense like I was supposed to get pomegranates instead. And so that, that'll, that'll work, right? You can make scalloped pomegranates. That'll work, right? That's good. You know, we're not, we're not called to rely on those things, to look to those things, to wait to have a liver quiver until we make decisions. Until we get goose, you know, Holy Spirit goosebumps or something. Um, but 
when we do have the Holy Spirit speaking to us, we can be attentive and listening, saying, is this in line with the principles God has revealed already? And He does speak that way sometimes. But it's not the primary means of guidance to wait for the Holy Spirit to speak subjectively to us. What you see in Acts, what's normative throughout the book of Acts? It's Paul and others that make decisions based on, on God's mission for them, what seems wise, and relatively rarely they're led otherwise by the Spirit. You see, they actually, they were going out to the places they wanted to go, Bithynia and those other places. They were just making plans and going there. And it was rare, but the Holy Spirit intervened. And Luke's like, whoa, this must have been significant. And why it was significant is because this is the means that got Paul to take the good news to what we know as Europe today. And really, because of that, we are here today because a lot of Europeans, by and large, heard the good news and God directed and guided through all kinds of circumstances and situations and desires a bunch of people to share the good news with, with us. And if we, we may have promptings, but we have to be careful that we're not presuming on those kind of things. We're not waiting to feel good about something. You know, because sometimes we can have that, that weird kind of mystical excuse of, I don't feel so good about this decision. Well, maybe. Maybe you don't feel good about it because you're being fearful, because it's going against your desires. Now, sometimes it might be that you can say, well, unless there's something I'm fearful of, unless I'm not in faith, unless I'm not denying myself, maybe, maybe then God is giving me pause. There are times like that. But God will always confirm those things in other ways as well. In Acts, one of the other ways we see that God guides and directs is through the counsel of others. That God guides and directs through the counsel of others. In Acts 9, the disciples, they were afraid of letting Paul to be a part of them because he had persecuted and killed Christians. They didn't want him to be a part of their group. They thought, this dude was just persecuting and killing. We are not going to have him be a part of our group. And yet, they were open to the counsel of godly men. They were open to the counsel of Barnabas, who was a godly man. And Barnabas, he came to him in Acts 9, 26, and it says, And they were all afraid of him, Paul, because they didn't believe he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. What was going on here? That was godly counsel from Barnabas saying, no, guys, you need to listen. He really is a disciple. We need to actually allow him to be a part of the mission that he's called us to. And good thing they did, right? Good thing Barnabas gave them godly counsel and they listened to it. Because God used Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And then later on, Paul, he went along with Barnabas to serve the church in Antioch. And in the passage there, it doesn't say because he heard a word from the Holy Spirit or he got the, you know, the, the supernatural shakes. He, he doesn't say that. He, there wasn't some sense or notion. It says Paul went because Barnabas came and asked him. You know, Barnabas needed help. He thought, who can help me? Who can help me on this mission? He went and he said, Paul, I think you can help me. Paul listened to God the council. Paul went and helped him in Antioch, and good thing he did because Antioch was one of the most influential churches in the early church. The Judaizers came into the church in Antioch. We know the story from a few weeks ago. There was a major conflict about the gospel. Paul and Barnabas, they were perplexed. They didn't know what to do next. And so they were sent by the church to go and get godly counsel from the apostles, from the disciples there, to, to understand what is wise here? What is the gospel and what is wise? 
And so the apostles there not only gave them an understanding of clarity for the gospel, and they also gave them wise godly counsel about here's how a more effective way to reach Jews if, you, if you're a Gentile, how not to ostracize them. Do these other things. They're not required by the law, but it seems good that you would do these other things. They listened to godly input and counsels. They had to stop some behavior that was offending other people. Sometimes we might need to listen to godly counsel from the people around us, friends around us, and stop some behavior that's offensive. Maybe somebody comes to us and God can lead us and guide us and direct us and we say, you know what, um, you have any thoughts for me on my marriage? You have any thoughts for me about my parenting? I'm having a rough time right now and I just wanted to get your advice. And they say, well, actually, you know, I've noticed in your parenting that you seem to be really permissive. You don't seem to be leading. They seem to be led by your children. Or, or maybe they share something like, you know, um, it seems like you're really trying to discipline, but it, you know what? With your fifth kid, it just seems like now you're not so consistent anymore. And God sometimes leads and directs us and guides us through godly counsel and advice. That could be God's direction for us sometimes. Or maybe, you know what, I, I've noticed that you're, you have a habit of, of cutting your wife off or being impatient with her. And God can bring direction and guidance to us about what, how we're to treat our wives and So Paul, he came back to Antioch, the request of Barnabas. They went down to Jerusalem to get guidance and counsel. And then frequently in the book of Acts, God directs his people through, through counsel, through godly wisdom of others, input. But that's not the only way we see. So not only does God direct through his word, not only does he direct supernaturally, then through also through an internal sense, but God also sometimes guides and directs through persecution and difficulty. That's not one we like, is it? I can't think of anybody here who likes persecution and difficulty. Well, one of the best examples of that, if you'll turn your Bible over to Acts chapter 8, it's the stoning of Stephen. You can go and flip over there, stoning of Stephen. Stephen has been proclaiming the good news about Jesus, and, and then he was stoned by the religious leaders. And Luke writes in Acts 8, 1, it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And at the end of uh, verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. God used persecution to direct them. They didn't know what God was doing. God was using hardship, persecution to direct them to scatter the seed of His Word just like they had been scattered. That was the means that God used to direct and guide them. Now, they weren't praying, God, would you send us persecution and hardship? Who prays like that? No one. Unless you're absolutely insane. But God does sometimes bring direction. They didn't assume that persecution meant they should stop preaching that they were doing something wrong. Sometimes I think as Christians, when we face difficulties in our lives and maybe even persecution in some form, we we wrongly might make the assumption, this means that God wants us to stop. When in reality, God might be saying, no, I want you to stand firm or I want you to keep preaching and keep looking for people who will listen. Also, the New Testament persecution difficulties an indicator they're doing something right. Peter and John, I mentioned earlier, they were arrested in the temple square, thrown in the jail. The angel delivers them. They go right back there again. It was the right thing to do, but God knew they were going to get arrested and beaten. But yet the angel of the Lord sent them back. Why? 
He was using persecution to direct them. Maybe he was using this to show the church that the, that the gospel was worth being imprisoned for. To give the church faith and hope if they saw that no God can sustain them even though they're being thrown in, in jail and, and beaten. Sometimes maybe the hardship that happens to us may be for the good of others as well. So that others can see God being glorified in our lives as we stand firm trusting in Him. Not understanding why. Sometimes we never understand why. Why hardship happens to us. Why difficult things happen to us. You may never understand why you face challenges. But God does. And it's not outside of His purposes and His plans. We can see so many different times Stephen was martyred for preaching the gospel. The reason he died is not clear, but he's commended for his example of being faithful to death. And maybe, maybe God, in addition to sending the people everywhere, maybe he wanted people to see that that's the kind of life I want to live. I want to, that the gospel is worth dying for. And so it was guidance, but we can see all guidance in, in many different ways. And it, it, Paul wrote to the Galatians about his trip, part of his missionary journey when he went to Galatia, about how he came to them because he had an illness. And most people think it's probably because he had something like malaria. And so he had, had a fever. And so he went up to Galatia because it was cooler there. Um, physically cooler, not because they were hipsters, but because it was a lower temperature. I like to think that Paul probably, well, maybe he would go to the hipsters. And to hipsters, he would be a hipster, right? All things to all men. But um, that's totally not in my notes. Shouldn't have gone there. But um, God guides us and, and directs us sometimes through hardship and difficulty. He, he was stoned um, by the people of Lystra and he was left for dead. But he got back up again and he goes back into the city. And you know what? That might have been what God used to, to convert Timothy, who we see later was so effective for the gospel. As they saw Paul giving his life for the one who had given his life for them. Paul and Barnabas, they encountered difficulty and conflict of all kinds. And, and, and God used that to bring direction. When they encountered that, those men from, from Jerusalem, those Judaizers, saying you have, to, you have to do something else in, in order to be saved, not just salvation by grace through faith, but you have to do something else. God used that hardship to guide them, to direct them. You know, later when Paul wants Barnabas to come along with him and they fell into a bitter disagreement, it was so sharp, it was so bitter that they parted ways. That's a, a relational hardship. Can God use those kinds of things, you might wonder? What about my own life? Can God use relational hardship and difficulty to, to guide me? Yeah, he can. He does. It was part of God's guidance for Paul and Barnabas. And, and God used this, this bitter splitting to send Paul off with Silas, who actually spoke Greek and was probably better qualified in some ways to, to write down Scripture than Barnabas. And Barnabas was sent out with Mark, who still needed to mature. And Barnabas was probably better suited to help Mark mature. And so God sends out two teams instead of one that was in God's Wisdom, he sends them out through hardship and relational difficulty. Sometimes God directs us through those things. You can have faith in God no matter what might come. Even if you don't understand it, even if he seems to be holding you back from what you really want. 
What was clear in each case is that persecution and conflict and difficulty didn't change their mission, didn't stop what God called them to, even if it did shape how they did it. It didn't stop what God had called them to. Often we see that God's people are guided and directed just through using God-given wisdom. It's the sixth way. The, the final thing we're going to look at is what is the, how, how does God guide and direct us? He guides and directs us through God-given wisdom, through using God-given wisdom. You know, if you are here and you can hear me, then God's given you a brain. Some more than others. And, but God's given all of us ability. All the ability He has given to us is from Him. Our ability to think, to process, to think logically, to think through things. Don't assume that you were just born with that and that's your own doing. No, it says any good gift comes down from God above. And so your intellect, your ability to think and process and make wise decisions, that comes from the Lord. And so he expects us to use our brains. That's a God-given gift. We can trust that we've placed our faith in Jesus. He's made us a new creation in him. He's also redeeming our minds. Now, sometimes we don't make wise decisions. That was, that's when we have to submit our decisions to God's word and biblical principles and to the counsel of others. But he uses just making wise decisions. Acts 1, they were, they were considering, how do we, what, should we replace Judas or not? This was not something Jesus told them to do. Jesus didn't tell them to replace Judas, but they thought, you know what? Um, Jesus said there were 12 of us, and Judas was gone. In, in Psalms, it talks about one of them will, will be taken away. He won't have a place, but another, buddy, another person should take this office, so I think we should have a 12th one. And so um, it, it was good. They applied just, just some wise principles there, and so they looked In Acts 1, they said, So one of the men who accompanied us during all the time that Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. They put forward two of them, it says. Joseph called Barsabbas, and then Justice and who was also, sorry, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice and Matthias. And so they put forward these two men, but it wasn't like, God had directed them who specifically. They thought, you know what, what's wise, what's good? Well, you know what, an apostle needs to be somebody who's, who saw Jesus, who was with him, who heard his teaching, and that seems good and wise. Now then they submitted that to God for Jesus to make the final decision. They cast lots. Why? Because Jesus called the original apostles. He wanted them, they wanted to submit that final decision to him. But they just used wisdom to pick them to begin with. They just used some wise principles. In Acts 6, there was a dispute. If you remember, the Hellenists, they were accusing, if you go to Acts 6, the Hellenists were accusing the, the Hebrews, ignoring their widows, because in the daily distribution of bread, their widows weren't getting fed. And they said, hey, you're, you're not being wise here. And there was a dispute. What did the apostles do? It doesn't said that they say that they had to you know, go and pray, and God, what would you have us do? No, they just thought about something wise. What's a wise course of action? You know what? A good biblical principle is that we've been gifted to preach God's word. And so we need to serve people with God's word. That seems wise to us. And it seems wise that other people still, it's not good that widows get neglected, so let's make sure someone's serving them. And it's wise that people with serving gifts serve them so that we can be freed up to serve with God's word. It's just a wise principle. God was leading them and guiding them through God-given wisdom. And it caused the church to grow and to mature and to increase. There's so many other cases where the apostles use God-given wisdom where they see a need and they see people need leadership and instruction. And and so they send Peter and John up to the Samaritans. 
Nobody told them to do that. They just knew that they needed, they needed instruction. They needed pastoring. So they sent up Peter and John. It was a wise thing to do. Later, the apostles would send Barnabas to Antioch. Why? Because it's, they knew that the people there, they would need to, to be taught and instructed. We read of Paul in, in Acts 9, 23-25. Um, he'd been converted. He was preaching in Damascus very effectively, and they sought to kill him. Did When they found out that, you know, did they say, oh, wait a minute, stop. What should we do? Somebody's trying to kill us. Notice the Jews plotted to kill him. It says, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening the wall, lowering him in a basket. They didn't wait to hear some clear word from God to have a subjective sense. They knew that Paul was about to get killed. They said, this isn't good. Let's lower him down through a basket. It's just wise. Why did they lower him down outside the city walls? Because why? They're watching the gates. Just common wisdom. God leading, guiding, directing his people. They got Paul out of there later. Paul was, went in Jerusalem. Paul kind of stirred it up where he went, didn't he? He went to Jerusalem and he, he was stirring things up with the Hellenists. And he was causing problems. And they wanted to kill him there too. And so in Acts 9.30 it says, When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It, it didn't take a lot for them to figure out, you know what, we don't want him to be killed because we want him to go and, and preach the gospel. And maybe he needs to cool his heels a little bit in his hometown. So they sent him to Tarsus. They didn't use the very seemingly spiritual Christian excuse we use today. You know, somebody says, you know, I'd like you to serve in this area of ministry. You say, I don't know. I have to pray about that. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe God will guide you that way. But maybe you can say, is this in line with God's words, in line with godly principles? Do I have the ability to do it? And, and can I? And so maybe God's already given guidance to us in many areas where we, where we kind of have... And I'm not saying everybody does that you're copying out because sometimes in more significant areas you have to think, Lord, what do I have to give up in order to serve in this area? That's, that's good. But sometimes we do the Christian cop-out thing. I don't know, I'll pray about it. We're not going to pray about it. We're not even thinking about praying about it. That's just a cop-out way, a very polite way of saying, no, I'm not really interested, but I'm not going to tell you that right now because I, I, that would seem like I'm not very spiritual or Christian. <laughs> so... We give them an over-spiritualized reason, right? I think all of us have done that. I've done that. I mean, I hope you've done that. It's not just me. Um, but, you know, normatively, God just guides us through what's wise and good. Now, sometimes that wise and good part, why we need to pray about it is because we have to consider, is this wise and good? Am I able to do this? Am, am I able to fulfill the responsibilities he's called me to and also do this other thing? That's wise, okay? That's good. Consider the cost. You know, no man builds a building without considering the cost. That's good, but that's a wisdom issue. And we're pursuing God's will in that way. I got a letter a week or two ago from Seda Sakaguchi. He's our, our friend who's helping to plant a church in Tokyo, Japan. And it's, it's perhaps the largest city in the world that's completely, almost completely unreached with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's, and it's wise for him to be there. Why? Because there's hardly any believers. And, and, and he's Japanese. And it's good. He can reach his own people with his own culture. And, and it's good for us to help support a mission there. We don't have to think a ton about, you know what, is it good and wise for us to support extra local missions? We don't, we don't have, we, is this wise? Are they using their money wisely? Are they faithful? Are they preaching the gospel? Do they have integrity? The reaching people who never heard about Jesus in a way that we couldn't do, that's, that's wise for us to support him. And I wanted to read you a, a thank you note that he wrote to our church recently 
He's thanking us for our, our partnership and support in the gospel. And he said, it's been about seven months since we moved into our apartment in Tosu. And we have had many gatherings here. And God's blessed us with many wonderful friends already. And he lists a few of them. Yoko, Aki, Hiro, and, and Momoka. Our four young moms we have started having weekly family dinner with. And we share not only our meals together, but also our own struggles and failures in our marriage and parenting. Talk about how the gospel gives us hope. These ladies have told us that they started praying to God now. And two of them told us that they would like to become Christians soon. And so Seda goes on to write, Please pray for the miracle of the new birth that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. Thank you for playing a part in making it possible for us to be here to love these people through your support. We're dreaming of many lives being saved and many churches being planted here in Tokyo. She says, please continue to pray. We're praying for the advancement of the gospel in Greenville and beyond through Redeeming Grace Church. And as they boldly proclaim the gospel, they are using wisdom about how to establish relationships. They're using common sense. Hey, where can we reach people? How can we communicate with people who really are relatively closed off? Well, we're going to have them in our home for a meal. And then we'll tell them about Jesus. And they have to hear some special sense from God. It just seems like a wise way to reach people in that culture and context. Maybe for us, we're thinking, hey, the Super Bowl is coming up. i got a bunch of guys who don't really talk, but you know what? In my neighborhood, I'm going to invite them all over the Super Bowl. Then I'm going to talk to them. Now, now do that in commercials so they won't hate you. And do that in the, in the bad commercials. But that you know, look for ways, maybe before and after, or at halftime, which is always useless. You know, Be wise about looking for ways to... Proclaim the gospel. Just use wisdom for God to guide you and direct you. Use what you're already doing. Have invite, invite people into your life. You know, most of the time in Acts, God shows the disciples just use wisdom that God had given them to carry out the mission he called them to. They relied on the empowering, empowering spirit. They trusted in God. But most of the time, they just relied on God's word, what he already commanded. And all throughout Acts, we can see they're responding to the commands of Jesus. And they used wisdom. They pursued that. Now, God worked mightily through that. I want us to anticipate that God will work mightily through us. That God is working mightily through us. He's working in our church. He's working in our lives. He's going to use common means to, to work mightily. And, and we're not to, to go looking for the spectacular, but boy, spectacular happens when we are faithfully pursuing God's will and following Him. So for us, what are a few takeaways for us? I think the first one is let's look to God's word to see what he's commanded us to do. What our mission is and how, God, how Jesus has called us to live. Let that inform us first and foremost. The next thing is that we should seek to practically apply his word and ask ourselves what principles in his word apply to our lives and how does it inform the decision, whatever that decision is that we're facing. It says that God's word is, is profitable for instruction really in every area of our lives then we should get the godly counsel of other men and women, brothers and sisters. Look for people who are living wisely and faithfully for God. Seek their input. Check it against the input, against the Bible and and biblical principles. And look to see where God's already at work. Say, God, where are you already at work? Can I join you in that? Maybe you have an area of sin. Um, You already know what you're supposed to do. Stop. And then don't think I've got to get my life right before before I... I come to fellowship with Him. Come to Him, and He gets your life right. Have fellowship with other people. Ask for godly input and counsel. If you're encountering persecution and difficulty, see if there's anything that God's teaching us and happening. If it's happening because we're doing His will, if we're suffering because we're being fools. And then pay attention. Sometimes God gives us that internal subjective guidance. 
But let's be careful we don't start there. That we don't put undue weight um, on a manner of leading the Scripture doesn't guarantee, and more often than not, it won't come. And then we need to consider, what has God called me to, and what's wise, what seems prudent? Sometimes what God calls us to might be crazy. I, I've, I've done some crazy things. I moved across the continent twice. It seemed crazy. I was living in a, in a very beautiful part of the world. No offense to here, but it was far more beautiful than, than, than South Carolina. I love South Carolina. It's beautiful. I love it here. We're staying put. Boy, Vancouver is prettier, though. Um, it just is. They've got the mountains. They've got city. They've got the ocean. It's all right there. Um, you can golf, snow ski, and water ski in the same weekend. Um, I've done, done two of those. Um, but, you know, sometimes God does call us, call us to take big steps of faith to obey Him and to carry out His commission. And then lastly, what we need to do is submit everything in prayer and trusting God for the results, taking a step out in faith, just doing what He's called us to do, 